Hello there, listeners. On this episode of Not Your Average Operator, we're joined by a very special guest, the multi-talented Dave MacDaddy McGregor, also known as Mac. The MacDaddy has what might be a unique combination of skills. He's a professional tr- jazz trumpet player, F-18 Hornet pilot, flying instructor, and joint tactical air controller, JTAC. His story highlights that none of us really know what our capabilities are or how our story will unfold until we apply ourselves fully. You'll hear a story about a boy in Perth, Western Australia, getting a trumpet in grade five, which launched a lifelong love of music, including scholarships through high school and university. This musical passion led to a professional career of 10 years, performing in Australia and the US with some very big names. In the background though, the Mac Daddy had never forgotten a childhood desire to fly fast jets for the Australian Air Force. And then a setback, which he explains about in his 20s, lit the fire to follow his second dream. Of course, nothing worth achieving comes easily and Dave describes some of what he had to do to overcome challenges and then be accepted into the pilot training program at the age of 27 and a half. During the episode, you'll also hear stories from combat operations in Afghanistan, where the Mac Daddy served as a fighter pilot specialist, JTAC, with his training special forces. The main thread of Mac's story is that adaptation and work is needed for all of us in life and that no pathway is ever laid out for anyone. With a clear goal and the right attitude, we can all carve our own way. I hope you enjoy this special interview with Dave the Mac Daddy McGregor. Not your average operator. Not your average operator. Not your average operator. Welcome back to another episode of Not Your Average Operator with me, Paul Mellon McFadden, in the sunny Middle East. Or am I? <laughs> After 42 episodes or something, I'm back in the land of my birth. And this is a frosty that I'm going to rip the top off. And I'm at a neck. So I'm here with my boys, Mike and Raph. How are you going there, lads? Not as good as you, dude. Uh- <laughs> I'm over the moon. I'm pretty happy, i got to say. We see that. Dude, it's it's so awesome. Yes, Melon is home. He's he's smiling, and I haven't seen him without a frothy in his hand every time we've checked in together. It's just all smiles, family, and frothies. It's, it's, it does happen like that. It does. Nothing wrong with it. Well, it's not illegal here. <laughs> yeah, what uh, what Melon doesn't what Melon doesn't know is he's actually uh, he flew into his own intervention. <laughs> uh, a bunch of us waiting in the hallway <laughs> so so for everybody there's that's tracking in australia there's a uh, there's a quarantine like they're quarantined in, in a place called perth and uh melon thought it was like for the coronavirus and it was for it was for that but actually it's quarantined for him and, and his family coming in like just causing havoc and drinking all, all this stuff so they need they need melon in particular in quarantine and the, they built the whole zone just for him but so uh, it, you know, there is a quarantine in Australia. Fly in. You got, it's it's pretty strict here. There's 14 day quarantine for anyone, and it's only Australian citizens who can come in. And uh, but the good news when you look out the window is there's no coronavirus in Australia. So bars are full, nightclubs are full, football stadiums are full, and even jazz bars are full. So uh, we've heard in the intro there a little piece about my mate the Mac Daddy, the Dave McGregor. 
and he joins us here. How are you going there, Dave? Very well. Thanks, Melon. Nice to be here. Also in Perth, hold up in quarantine. Dave's just down the road from me, guys. So he's, he's seven days ahead. Um, so he'll be out of quarantine seven in like a couple of days. And he'll be back down to the south coast here with his family, enjoying the beaches and surfing with his son and uh, doing the do. Indeed, I will. Look very much looking forward to it. For some of the for some of the listeners, I just want to say it's just like it's going to be a lot. So I think I mentioned it before when we referenced this episode. We're just going to have the Australian dictionary in the show notes, uh, some common phrases, some different things. For uh, we don't have an interpreter, so to speak, but uh, we're going to help everybody out there. But uh, <laughs> no, not uh, Mac Daddy, dude. It, it's great to meet you, man, and have you on. So thanks for coming, man. Thanks, Mike. It's nice to meet you guys as well. So Dave and I have worked. Uh, the first time we worked together, I think was in about 2006 or seven uh, in Australia, just up the road here from where we are in uh, quarantine at the Australian Air Force Flying School. And then uh, we sort of went to all points of the campus and then we met up over in Saudi again. And in between time, Dave has had all sorts of uh, career highs and in many different parts of the world doing many different jobs. But he's one of the most interesting guys I've met. He, he, there's not many people who could roast you a coffee, go surf a wave. They could teach you to fly. They could fly a hornet. They could call in an airstrike or they could play lead trumpet in a jazz band. So it's a very strange combination of uh, attributes that the Mac Daddy possesses. So Dave, why don't you tell, could you give everyone just a little bit of a background, you know, career highlights or just sort of briefly hit your story, maybe even include what, where the name Mac Daddy came from. Yeah, okay. Thanks, Melon. Uh, yeah, look, I, I, I grew up uh, on the West Coast here in Perth, but um, uh, music started pretty early in primary school. Uh, the last couple of years of primary school, they had a band and I, I was given a trumpet um, out of nowhere and it kind of worked out pretty well. That, that led to a scholarship uh, at a secondary school here uh, in Australia and um, that then led to you know, pursuing uh, a music degree um, and uh, studying jazz primarily, but uh, Bachelor of Music, which then led to, you know, well, actually a professional career started during that time. Um, and then uh, all the way into my mid-20s, that's what I did for a living, is play trumpet um, and uh, in all sorts of uh, different musical scenarios, uh, jazz and uh, modern music being the main part. But in my mid-20s, um, it, it sort of came upon me that, you know, my, one of my childhood dreams was to to fly fighters in the Air Force. And I got to that age where I thought, well, probably better do that before I get too old. <clears throat> so it's a bit of a long story behind it, but uh, I did end up joining the Air Force uh, and got in um, at the age of 27 and four months, which was a couple of months shy of the age limit at the time um, and joined up and uh, got through pilot's course and on to fly jets and uh, had a, a couple of tours on fighters. And uh, that was sort of how that career all happened. But uh, that was very much the short version of it anyway. That's, wow, that's already pretty impressive just off the bat. But I think what all the listeners were really wanting to hear is, did uh, did you ever happen to play at a bachelorette or like a strip joint? Was that part of all your professional gigs? <laughs> yeah, look, I didn't actually play at a strip joint, but sometimes that did happen due to my playing. It was occasionally a problem, right? <laughs> Tip of the old hat. Good job, sir. Yeah, there you go, Raph. So, wow, man, that's pretty cool. Like, 
mu- music to me, I- I'm sure with a lot of people, I, I love music. And-, and one of the things I've really noticed just about, you know, my friendship with Melon is like his daughter, Annie. And I've got all these videos and stuff of her playing piano. And uh, I've tried to play the piano. I can play like one and a half songs a little bit. But, um, you know, just kind of getting into it, like what brought you to uh, what brought you to that point? Like what made you want to learn an instrument? What, you know, like why, why jazz? Why, why that instrument? Yeah, good, good question. Look, it, it actually really happened naturally. I don't, I don't remember ever thinking I really want to play the trumpet or even music for that matter. Um, but in, the, in the, the school that I was in primary school, it's called Marmion Primary School, the suburb just down the road here in Perth. And they had a, a brass band in year six and seven, so the last two years of the junior school. Uh, and at the end of year five, they, because there was a band, they gave everyone a music test. And if you got a good enough result, you had the option of, of joining the band. Um, and then they wanted to give me a trombone. I said, no, oh, I like the trumpet, you know, as, as kids kind of tend to do. And, and I remember the teacher only gave us the mouthpiece for, I think, two weeks, which I think is pretty unusual in the modern time. So they, they only, all I had was a small brass mouthpiece for the trumpet. And I buzzed that for a couple of weeks. And then I still remember the day when we were in the school library when I was handed the trumpet for the first time. <clears throat> and I played it one note out of the trumpet and it was just a perfect G. I didn't expect it to come out like it did, but it just came out like a beautiful trumpet noise. And everybody in the library turned around and looked at me. And I was like, well, why is everyone looking at me? And the teacher was just sort of looking at me as well. I was like, well, that doesn't normally happen. Um, and so it just it just came naturally. Um, the trumpet and me were a thing from 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 the first note. Um, and look, that that soon turned into um, some sort of a I guess a musical talent which was there, and um, that led to a scholarship at high school. And it was really uh, in the secondary school where the program, you know, where I grew into a musician, uh, and so I started to find you know something I was good at initially turned into something that I loved through that time and um and the, you know the, the program included orchestral um trumpet playing and uh solo trumpet playing and and also uh, there was a there was a jazz band that we played in i mean it was it was before and after school it was on saturdays it was an all-encompassing program so that was my whole life through through high school and you know the, the friendship group that were on that or the 30 or so people that were in that scholarship year were very close all the way through and we still you know a lot of them are still very good friends today but it was an amazing time, um, and then that, you know, that jazz band also led to a bit of a, um, a youth jazz orchestra uh, gig uh, before I joined university, and then I auditioned for university and uh, continued you know, my music there. Um, and, and I majored in jazz just because that was what I loved the most at the time. The Air Force thing was happening in the background though, even then. So in year ten here, back in um, uh, what's that, the third, well, the third last year of high school over here. Um, we have a like a work experience program where most guys will go and do a couple, two or three weeks somewhere in the real world to get a bit of a taste. And I actually asked to go out to the air base here at Pierce. Um, didn't work out that well for me because I got shoved into some engineering room and told to fix up altimeters. Didn't really get a look at the aircraft for real, but I was out there because even back then I was, there was something in me that was always wanting to do that as well. So yeah, I'm probably boring you guys by now with all this backstory, but yeah, it was like, it was just an interesting sort of time. And then, like I said, the musical career happened naturally after that. Um, and I had some wonderful highlights um, 
and Melon sort of mentioned a couple in the in the show notes, which I can talk about if you want. But um, yeah, no, it was it was a great time in my life. Dave, how long was your uh, professional music career? How long how long did that run for? Well, I probably did my first paid gig in second year uni, um, so I was already at a good enough level, if you like, to be to be hired by things that were going on in the city. Um, I was doing, I think I did a show like 42nd Street in third year uni. So that was actually quite difficult to manage. So I was in a Broadway show in the pit um, during that time. But then, you know, towards the end of my bachelor degree, I was already starting to be a known quantity in the town and I was starting to do gigs all over the place. Yep. So from maybe 18 to 27 and a half, that sort of... Yeah, so more or less nine, gusting 10 years when I did my last gig you know, uh, about a week before I walked into my officer training. So, yeah. And were you already married uh, with children by this time or did this happen after the flying started? Jazz music. Come on, have a think about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I was not married. I met uh, Elizabeth, my wife, uh, whilst on pilot's course here in Perth. Uh, but that was a few years down the track uh, in the Air Force. Hey Dave, what what would be the musical career highlight for you? Like of the venues you've played or the musicians you met? Because I know that there are some big names in there. Yeah, there are, like I did, I was very lucky. Um, I, it, being in a capital city, I guess um, there are touring acts that come through, and so through the professional career, some big names came into town, and quite often they're looking for a horn section. Um, and so I was lucky enough to get the call for a, for a few fairly big gigs. So I guess. Um, you know, Ray Charles springs to mind and Natalie Cole, um, Shirley Bassey, um, to name a few. But, um, you know, there were, there were Kenny Rogers, actually, as well, interestingly. That was a funny gig. Um, so, yeah, um, it was just being a professional musician. You know, it wasn't because I was particularly, you know, awesome or anything, but um, you get gigs as a professional musician and sometimes you get the privilege to, to meet and play these wonderful people. Yeah. So just walk in. Wow. Were you, able to, were you able to play poker against Kenny Rogers and just clean him out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I would have loved to have done that. But uh, no, but he was a very nice guy. Like uh, one of the things that you, you find out about these people is that they're real people. And, um, you know, backstage, they're just like anyone. But um, I did, there is a funny story. I didn't, I never played a gig with James Brown, but I did a supporting gig uh, for his big show when he came to Australia. And um, the band I was playing with was called Hot House, awesome band here in Perth, but uh, uh, five-piece horn section. We were, we were doing a warm-up. Um, it was in the entertainment centre here, which is no longer here anymore, but an 8,000-seat stadium, so a pretty big stadium, sort of like NBA-style stadium because they used to play the basketball in it here as well. Um, and, yeah, we are doing a sound check. So what long, probably an hour or so before the show, our support show even started, we finished the tune. It was, it was pretty good fun. And we, we had to go and walk backstage and wait for our time. And then I was walking into a dark, down the stairs into a dark sort of backstage area. And I bumped into someone who was about, you know, five foot, had a dressing, a blue dressing gown on with pink slippers and pink curlers in his hair. It was right. And, and he said to me, <laughs> and as I walked down the bottom of the stairs, he goes, great, man, that was so good. And I was like, is that James Brown? He goes, oh, hi, James. You know, sort of, and it was him right there. Just He was at the side of the stage rocking to the, to the sound check, 
loving our band. And uh, so there you go. You just you never know who you're going to bump into when you when you're doing these sorts of gigs. Wow, dude, that <laughs> talk about some humble pie a little bit there, huh? That's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty pretty good times. And and uh, did you? So I know I know that you uh, spent a fair bit of time in North America as well. So have you got any good gig? Or any good backstories uh, in New York, Chicago, or any good times for the, for the North American listeners for places they'd be familiar with? Yeah, sure. Um, in, in the mid-90s, um, <clears throat> so it was 1996, actually, a really good friend of mine, Michael Panagi, who's uh, still a wonderful uh, musician and drummer, uh, who plays, he's back in Perth now, he spent a lot of time in the Middle East as well, interestingly, playing gigs. Um, but uh, he and I had a, had a band, a jazz group together, which we did a lot of our um, stuff with during that time but we went on a, a big trip together for about four four and a half months uh, around the world but a large part of that was in North America so we went to New York Chicago and LA and we had particular reasons for being there so I, I was getting lessons of a guy in, in LA called Bobby Shue a famous rubber player um, but during our time there as you can imagine we were just traveling with a backpack and I had my trumpet with me pretty much anywhere we could get a, you know, a jam session we were there to have a go and um, but there was a, a bit of a backstory from the New York um, experience because uh, Wynton Marsalis, who's a, a um, famous uh, jazz musician, trumpet player, uh, who, who lives in New York. But um, I mean, if, if your listeners don't know who he is, they should definitely look him up. He is probably one of the, you know, the best and well-known jazz trumpeters of the world in the current age. But he had done a tour of Australia. And um, while he was here, I snuck in backstage because I knew the venue and managed to get past security and just managed to jump into him and meet him. And I, while I was there, I had a chat to him. He was a very humble guy, extremely humble guy, actually amazing. Um, uh, he, I said to him, look, we're having a jam session downtown at a little cafe called Fat Bellies here in uh, Leaderville uh, in Perth. Um, look, I know you've had a, a big concert, by the way, a wonderful concert, but if you're keen on having a jam session, you know, you're welcome to come along sort of thing. And, I was sort of just throwing it out there, completely expecting him to say, look, you know, we've, got a, we've got a big tour. I'm just going to go back to the hotel room. He goes, oh, okay, um, what time are you starting? And I'm like, uh, you know, I looked at my watch. So I think it was like 10.30. I was like, you know, oh, you know, maybe 11.30 or so, something like that. And I hadn't really fully organised it. So I, I sort of threw it out there, not expecting him to say yes. But he said, sounds good, man. I'll, I'll see you down there about midnight. Just got to go back and sort out a few things at the hotel. And I was just like, What? So immediately onto the phone, calling up everybody around Perth and saying, hey, guys, Winton Masalas is coming for a jam session. We need a rhythm section and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, long story short, we had a jam session till three or four in the morning at this cafe, just in Leaderville down the town here. And I've got photos. You know, this is back before digital cameras, of course, but there's good old photos of, of us all standing on the stage. You know, um, and three of the horn guys from the big band came down as well. So there was a um, sax player and... A trombone player and we just jammed all night playing jazz and I was just you know, way out of my depth but having a great time nonetheless <clears throat> at the end of that he, he on a scrap of paper like just literally I like, tore off a piece of the, the menu and he wrote down his address and his phone number on that on that piece of paper and um, anyway a few years later in 1996 I was in New York and I thought oh I'll give this phone call this uh, phone number of course I was in the public phone because we we're you know staying in hostels and that sort of thing on the cheap and um, gave it the dial and, you know, some guy answered the phone and heard my accent and just hung up straight away. Like, what the hell is this guy talking about? <laughs> and so luckily, 
you know, we in were North there America, for- they're so racist. Us poor Aussies. <laughs> we're all no. friendly. We're all no, friendly. To be honest with you, he probably thought you were one of the jerky boys. And anyone who's listening, uh, there was these famous prank callers that kind of made uh, a tape out of it, actually. It's pretty funny. And they would make these ridiculous accents. So that's probably what they thought. And this was like, I think, which said 96? Yep. Oh, yeah, dude. That's like peak jerky boys you know, kind of era. Yeah, you got you got Saul Rosenberg calling from Australia. <laughs> don't, be, don't be a hater. If you get an Aussie on the phone, he needs help. If he's in North America, he's lost. <laughs> yeah, it was funny stuff. Unfortunately, my American accent wasn't very good, particularly my New York one, so I had to stick with it. But uh, yeah, look, again, I don't want to drag the story on for too long for you guys, but it, it, I actually had to call him about five times. Um, so over the two, I was in New York for two and a half weeks. And every second day I called up and got hung up on one, in one way or another. But as I found out later, the guy who was answering that, I mean, I didn't even know if it was him, by the way, because it was a few years later and it was just a scrap of piece of paper phone, which, which I was still carrying around. You, know, this is, you didn't just put it in your device back then. You had, you had nothing like that. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I think on the fifth time I rang him up and a different guy answered the phone this time. And I recognised his voice straight away. And I said, don't hang up, don't hang up. And I, the whole sort of... You know, just like the TV show, the desperate sort of guy on the other end of the phone. And, um, and I, I said to him, look, I'm calling up. We had a, a jam session in Perth, Australia. My name's Dave McGregor, blah, 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 blah. And he goes, Dave, yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And um, it, was, it was Winton on the phone this time. So the, the other four times, I think, was some other guy, just like a you know, receptionist or whatever at his house. But he goes, yeah, you should come over and have a jam. And so... Um, I was like, oh, sure, sort of thing, you know. Anyway, long story short, a couple of afternoons later, I was um, in Central Park West, um, you know, sort of walking in in a very fancy apartment, um, having to go through the doorman and explain who I was, which was also a bit difficult and strange. And I walked into, the lift opened up into his apartment, so there was no sort of hallway, if you can understand what I'm talking about there. And, um, yeah, and there was, you know, three guys all on the couch, um, they didn't look like me, if you know what I mean. And they just gave me the full stare down because I was standing there with my trumpet on my shoulder. And they sort of went, oh, what's up, man? So that afternoon, we um, sat down and ate Creole in the kitchen. And he got me to play after we were just sitting in the kitchen, at the kitchen table. And he said, right, get out your trumpet and play something for me. So no pressure. Just, you know, basically like some fighter pilot having to showing what it's like to fly in front of Chuck Yeager. It was just a crazy experience. But, um, yeah, um, there I was. So the afternoon was spent with Winton Marsalis, just hanging out in his apartment, singing, playing piano, playing the trumpet together. Yeah, amazing stuff. So, wow, dude, that, that's a really cool story. I know you were compressing a lot just, just into that, but I, I'd love to hear some of the conversations that took place. Um, I don't know if you knew this about me. I know we just kind of met, but, you know, I played the recorder in third grade. <laughs> semi-professionally <laughs> so maybe we could jam sometime I, th- I feel like we're up to par now that i know your backstory yeah i'd love to do that i reckon awesome. i've always wanted to jam with a recorder player <laughs> funny if you fast forward a few you know quite a few years i actually think you guys might have been in afghan at about the same time so Dave has now gone through Air Force training as a fighter pilot, got selected to be a JTAC, which uh, for our listeners, they send a specialist in with the uh, Aussie SF, the Special Forces guys, an embedded fighter pilot is with them, coordinating all their 
uh, air support for the overhead guys. So they need a specialist to coordinate all that for them. And so that was Dave as a joint tactical air controller. And uh, around what time was that day? What year? So that was 2013. Yeah, the first half of 2013. So I think these two gorillas were over there in 2012. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I left in uh, springtime, right? At the, yeah. Springtime 2012. Raph was there. You were till the end of 12, beginning of 13, I want to say. Yeah. I just, I let the record show Mike left as soon as the fighting started. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Uh, we got there at the very beginning. Basically, we, uh, my task force was there the entire year of 2012. We left at the S end of it. So. Yeah, look, I, I was, I guess you could say, depending on which way you look at it, uh, I was lucky in, in terms of the fighting season had pretty much kicked off just after I settled in. And it was a very busy time from sort of January to July in 2013. Yep. So what was it, uh, can you describe for the listeners and everything, like what, what was it like being attached to an ALZI special forces team and going out as a JTAC, like what type of mission would you do? Like, you know, an experience that you had or something like that. Like, can you paint a picture for what, for the listeners that have no idea what kind of that is, like what you would do out there? Yeah, I guess um, to try to clear it up a little bit, really um, the the expertise that I was there for was not my JTAC, but, but really my, my F-18 and fighter pilot background. Um, so we were embedded in the liaison headquarters. Oh, I was in the SF headquarters, but um, supporting like a rotation between the Australian commandos and um, the SAS, like a three-day, four-day on, they were rotating each other's uh, missions. And I was in support of both of them throughout that whole time, um, basically coordinating any air support that they needed. Um, spend a lot of time, you know, generating um, knowledge I was, I was based in Kandahar, uh, but generating knowledge over all the different parts of, you know, the large base of Kandahar to our mission so that they could support in the right way. And then on the mission itself, I was there. And because it was a very busy time, uh, I had a lot of work to do, uh, coordinating everything from, you know, combat uh, or sea star all the way through to the, uh, the pointy stuff as well. So, yeah, no, it was, it was um, a very interesting job. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I've got to put my, take my hat off to the guys out on the field. Obviously, me sitting in the headquarters is nothing like being a JTAC on the hill. And there were guys, obviously, you know, dealing, dealing with high altitude sickness and doing the hard yards where I was sitting back drinking a coffee and, and making it uh, a lot easier. So, but still a very interesting role. I got to, I got to, luckily, I got to fly a handful of times, uh, the Aussie uh, commandos, and those guys were uh quite the species man um like absolutely professional i know the sas have a black eye right now because of some stuff that was happening around that era i won't dive into that um i think i might have worked with some of those guys but i'm not you know it's I, i'm not really 100 percent sure but the the commandos that i did work with were absolutely um just like tip of the spear i mean i remember thinking to myself like i'm really happy these guys are on our side because um, they're really good at what they do. I just remember, I think I might have told Mel in the story, um, one of the guys that uh, we flew was not just their sniper, he was also their medic. And when I say their medic, the dude was a full-blown medical doctor. He wasn't just a medic. I mean, yeah, I remember and when he was telling me, his, not his resume, but we're just kind of having a conversation. And, he, and I knew that he was a sniper. And then I found out that he was also a medical doctor. 
I stopped and I looked at him. I was like, what are you trying to prove? And he just started laughing. And I was like, no, <laughs> seriously, what are you trying to prove? But I just, just a bunch of great blokes, man. I, I mean, absolutely. Every time we got to their headquarters or, you know, their little shack, they're absolutely the best hosts, man. They were just funny dudes, you know, ready to go do some work. And I just remember thinking like, God, God these guys are, I was really impressed, you know? So it was, it was kind of, uh, you know, it was kind of a, a downturn when I read about the SAS thing going on. And I was like, man, that that really that's unfortunate. Right. Because uh, they left such a positive impression on me when I worked with them. Yeah, look, I, I was in, in awe of both of those um, teams. So, I mean, the commandos and the SAS did different roles. But look, I, I saw nothing but absolute professionalism while I was over there. It was an amazing thing to, to see what they did. I spent a lot of time with them uh, up, at, up at TK as well. Um, they spent a lot of time trying to get me out in the field with them, but I wasn't allowed to go out there for, for the job that I was doing. But um, very professional guys, very professional, and they were doing an amazing role. Yeah. You know, like you said, everybody's just people, you know, whether you're a musician or Alzi. My, my, my only run-in with the Alzi SF guys was in Kandahar, and I, I think I referenced it in a previous episode. I would, uh, whenever I was on a fire base or like out anywhere, like random spots, I'd always take out my terrible towel, right? So I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. So I'd have my terrible towel out and you would hear random times like, hey, Pittsburgh, you're like, go Steelers or something, you know? And one day I'm in Kandahar and I walked out of the chow hall. I don't hear, hey, mate, go Pittsburgh. And I was like, what the hell? And I turn around and there's this Australian SAS guy. He was a major, I want to say. And he come up, he's like, hey, mate. He's like, how's it going? You from Pittsburgh? And I was like, I am. I'm from right here, dude. I showed him like on a map. I'm like, yeah, I'm from right here. And he's like, well, I'm a Steelers fan, mate. He's like, he's like, what are you doing with the terrible towel? He's like, I have mine hanging in my room. And I was like, dude, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. You know, and I, I told him where I was. And he's like, hey, maybe we'll like operate together at some time. And I was like, dude, I, I hope so. And uh, I was actually, uh, I took that terrible towel and I was having soldiers and everybody that I would meet. Uh, sign it because I ended up giving it to at the time he's a player uh, Troy Palomalu so Troy Palomalu has a Australian SES major signature uh, and his stuff with the name in his house on the terrible towel as a Steelers fan so that was my only run-in and I thought that was really cool but he, the guy was awesome man I mean he sounded like Melon three sheets to the wind and I was like wow this is an Australian officer no offense I'm sure that's kind of a compliment but uh, <laughs> But I, you know, that story popped out in my head. The, my other uh, Australian, or oh, my very specific Australian uh, at commando story. I, Melon, I think I might've told you this story. Mike, I think I might've told you the same story. So it was one of the, we did a cordon on a village and uh, my ship or my, my sister ship and I were uh, tasked to put them up on an OPIP. So an observation post, sniper post. Um, above the village and so we went in just before the actual insert and normally on Blackhawks uh, we always fly doors off so that you can kind of see the landing a little bit better and on this particular landing it was up on the mountaintop uh, I don't know the altitude it was pretty high it was up near Terrancot so it was you know uh, Bernstein Bears type country I mean these massive mountains but uh, anyways uh, I do remember it was a right wheel landing at night under MVGs and uh, these big gorillas every time you know every one of them jumps off, you've got to adjust the power setting. I mean, because they weigh two to 300 pounds a piece with all their equipment. So that's, uh, anyways, long story short, as they're jumping off and I mean, I'm kind of doing the, the tally in my head 
Um, and I'm thinking, okay, that, that should be about it. I think they're all out and I'm waiting for my crew chief to basically call the all clear so I can basically pick up about a foot off the, uh, off the, uh, basically pick up the wheel off the rock that I'm, I'm putting the wheel on and then just dive off the mountain. This savage of a, of an Aussie commando comes up and he slams me against the shoulder. Now I wasn't for any helicopter pilot out there, you're not expecting any of this. You know, you if you can just imagine, you're fully concentrated on the on this one spot. You know, just kind of 45 degrees from 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 wherever you're sitting, and you're just kind of focused on that, so you can see any slight maneuvering of the helicopter. You know, you can make a, a small adjustments on the flight controls. And I was, I, I've no one's ever done that to me. You know, literally on top of a 10,000 foot mountain, one wheel landing, and this dude comes up and he's like. I appreciate the ride, mate. And I can hear him screaming through the rotor system, which for anyone who's ever been in a helicopter, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> what he had done is basically took his unit patch off his chest and he threw it on my arm, but he, you know, he basically slammed it against my shoulder. And if it wasn't for that five point harness, I probably would have crawled across the cockpit into the other side. It scared the absolute shit out of me. <laughs> Later, it was funny, but at the time, I mean, it took everything I had not to yank the controls and pull the collective i mean he just it was looking back it was pretty funny but uh anyways, oh, that's just just for the for the listeners raf is flying there's no door on the side of the aircraft that he's flying on and a massive australian uh sas guy has gotten out and come around to the the driver's side and just thought he better let the driver know what a great job he'd done as he's in the hover with one wheel on the mountain climb back up and slammed in slammed the guy who's on the controls on the shoulder <laughs> to thank him did he leave a patch on you raf did you find a patch later yeah i still have it it's in the uh it's in my collection of you know memorabilia he's got a broken arm from it too <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so I, I have a question uh for for dave so uh there's there's a lot of talent, man. Like just hearing it, I mean, I'm sure we could go on and make an episode literally about every type of thing that you've done, whether it be like hornets doing a JTAC job with with music, all of it. Uh, what what is the driving force to do all these things? Like lots of people. I mean, we talk to a lot of people, and we talk to them, and they're like, "Yeah, man, you know, I dabbled in this, I dabbled in that," but like literally, those three things could all be separate careers you know really so like what drives you to just keep jumping into stuff and it sounds like you just keep finding you know the honeypot in in each in each field i mean it's really impressive man what, what, what keeps you going yeah th thanks mike um i it's i would say that the music thing just as i sort of said before kind of happened without really me thinking much about it it just i stepped into that it, it worked out for me in, in that I could do it. And um, during the, you know, the time where I was able to do that, it, it grew as a passion, you know, as I improved and, and got to the level that I did. Um, now it's just something that I, that I love and, and will always love, um, you know, not just playing it, but um, although I don't play it that much these days, but uh, listening to it as well. Um, but to be honest, the only dream I ever had so the music was never a thing I really wanted to do. That just happened. But then I, I, it became something I really loved to do, you know, through that time. But I only ever dreamed of, of joining the Air Force to fly uh, as a kid. That was something I always wanted to do. The music in some ways got in the way of it, actually. Um, and that, that was just something that happened, in, you know, on the side. But then, you know, there was a time in my mid-20s 
you know, there was an event that, that kind of caused me to reassess where I was at. Um, and I certainly didn't leave music because I didn't want to do that anymore uh, or, or that I didn't, um, you know, have a, a, an interesting career ahead of me. But it was like I was chased. That was the time to chase the dream before it was too late. Um, I think you could just say I was, I was lucky enough to have gotten in um, and, and I just worked hard and um, to the grindstone and one thing led to another. Um, but certainly, you know, Flying Fighters was the original was the original dream, and and, um, and that that was my, the main part of my career, I guess. What was the thing, Dave? What was the thing in your mid twenties? Because that, like, to achieve excellence in any one field, let alone fields that have, people would say are not aligned. They're not par- It's not just a ten degree change of course here. You know, like I know I know you really well. You guys should know. Rath has met you. You guys. Mac and I are best mates. Like we carpool, we coffee roast, like we hang out. And I know Mac really well, but I've not heard this before. You know, like what, what was the thing? Well, I mean, it was a, it was a broken heart, really. <laughs> it was a, it was a, all about a girl. Yeah. Um, probably the time, uh, yeah, the first time I'd been shocked in my life for something that wasn't expecting to happen. Um, and I had to really sort of dig deep and think about what's going on in my life at that point. Um, so I was enjoying life. Uh, that came out of nowhere. Uh, and then the silver lining was it drove me to, to maybe think about what I'm really trying to do. Um, so even though I'm enjoying music, what about that thing that I always dreamt of doing? So funny old thing, right? You look back and wonder what might have been. But uh, in actual fact, had that not happened, who knows? Maybe I never would have become uh, you know, an Air Force pilot. Uh, let alone a fighter pilot, for that matter. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't easy because because it was so long between since I'd done school, uh, and when I did school, I'd I'd had the right subjects um, just in case I wanted to join the air force and be a, a direct entry pilot here in Australia. But the curriculum had changed over the eight or nine years before I actually tried to join, and you know the recruiting office is just looking for filters. So I walked in as a jazz musician and I said I want to fly Hornets, and they're like, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, go and sit down and watch that video sort of thing. And um, so, you know, the first recruiting level sort of looked at my application and said, oh, I'm sorry, you haven't got the right maths. Um, so what do you mean? I'm, this is the maths that you needed when I went through school. And said, oh, I know, but it's changed since then. And I looked at the guy and said, really? As in, I mean, I did the maths that was right when I was, you know, the age I was. And, you know, seven years later, it's just a different name. Uh, you know, no, but quickly shifted as another, it's different topics and that sort of thing. I was like, oh, okay. And I walked away thinking, oh, well, at least I tried. But, you know, over that week, just got basically the, the belly, the fire lit. And I was like, well, that's it. I'm going to go do maths again at school. So this had to happen. Meanwhile, you know, while I was doing my professional music career, all on the sly, because I didn't really want to affect that, that side of the house. And um, so I secretly studied maths for a year whilst teaching at school and doing professional gigs um, the whole time, even to the point where during one of the times where I had to do the final exams, I had a music tour on the East Coast with a, a really good jazz group, which couldn't go without me. Um, and I had to plead with a teacher who amazingly uh, allowed me to do um, one of the exams, like the national exams, three days before the actual national exam. So she, she, I, she said, come and do the economics exam, but, you know, I'll slip you the maths exam. And, I mean, she made it happen for me, uh, which was an amazing thing. Um, so all these little steps um, basically got, got me to where I am today. But, 
So I would like to, well, two things. One, I would like to announce a vote for an official change of McGregor to MacGyver because you literally do everything. Uh, <laughs> that, so that would be cool. I think that would be cool. Uh, the, the other thing I, I really, you know, you really hit, hit it on the head, man, is, you know, I asked you what drove you and Mellon kind of brought it out, but it was a broken heart, man. And, uh, you know, that speaks to me because, uh, you know, if I'm being honest, I'm kind of the same way. You, you know, uh, a year ago, my heart was smashed and I've been on this path of living life and really just pushing the envelope in a lot of different directions and I'm succeeding. And it's really cool uh, to hear that because like, you know, fast forward, maybe 10, 20 years or something like that. Um, respect to your age, of course. I know I'm a youngin. I'm a young, I'm a young pup. I know that, but uh, no, that's really, that's really good to hear, man. Um, you know, it, it's, everybody has a different reason and a different driving force. And, you know, I know I felt the way I did and looking internally, it's, 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 it's done a lot of things. It's pissed me off. It's got me motivated. It wakes me up in the morning, uh, you know, a whole bunch of different feelings, but I'm using it as a fuel to drive forward and succeed. So thanks for, thanks for sharing that, man. Yeah. Wonderful stuff. It's amazing. Like I've known Dave a long time. I've not heard that before, but I think, I think all four of us, because I know I know all four of you pretty well, all three of you pretty well, and me, I know as well. We've all had breakdowns in our life, you know. And on the other side of that, that's where the really amazing things have occurred. And it's been, you know, you've had a hard time, you've dealt with that, and some either a new aspect of your character has been revealed, or you have made something new out of yourself in response to that. And that's. That's probably, you know, it's it's amazing to hear that, Dave, that that's the case. And I, I know with you, Mike, over the last year, the journey you've been on, including education. So you just heard a story about a guy there at 26, I guess, to go back to school and do maths because they just said the name had changed. He'd already done the hard maths, but had to do it again. Eat the humble pie. Yep. Suck it up, fire in the belly. Like, get after it, you know, like, Everyone has a hard time. Everyone suffers. Everyone struggles. And then, and then what? What do you, what do you, what are you up for? You know what I mean? Like, what do you, what's your mission? Go ahead, Raf. I'm just going to say, I think it's important for anybody who's listening um, to understand that that's kind of a common pattern that I've seen even throughout my life is when there's that rawness, right? Whether it's a death or a loss of a loved one or a, a really harsh breakup, you know, you tend to find yourself in this kind of a raw state, right? Where you're almost in a heightened sense of things. And I think it's really important to take advantage of that because that's where you start to achieve these pretty amazing feats, right? Like Dave gave great example, Mike, you taught, alluded to yours a little bit, but you also can't completely dismiss that sometimes in all that hard work, there's always these lucky breaks. Like you talked about that, that, uh, that person who kind of allowed you to do that national exam. And had it not been for that one, just just that little extra help, you know, you might have not stayed the course, right? Or you might have been, um, I don't know, delayed. And you said you were pretty close to the age limit. Um, but I, I, I say that so that the li listeners, because you might be in that position where you might be given that person that lucky break, right? Like, like don't, don't be so hard up on these rules because sometimes that's all you need, man. It's just that extra little edge. It can make all the difference. Um, I think that's important. I, you know, you'd be surprised. Yeah, it's probably, you never, probably, 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 probably. Go ahead, Dave. 
yeah, it's probably important for, um, <clears throat> as you can imagine, any large organisation has a set of filters and you have to be aware that they're doing their best to filter out whatever they can. Um, so um, not that I was aware of it at the time because I just was had my, my heart set on what I was trying to do and nothing was really going to stop me is, is, is how I felt. I just was going for it. But when you look back on it, um, they're, they're, they're putting up filters trying to get rid of you. Um, so if you do have a goal, expect to come up against um, problems that you need to resolve um, and don't let that sway you is, is what I would suggest as well. I want to add, I want to add like there's no easy run for anyone. So like there's no, there is no round peg and a round hole. So you got to, you got a guy with a jazz degree and has worked as a professional jazz trumpet for 10 years, has fronted up to recruiting and they're like, no, this is what you're not the guy we're looking for. And Dave, what in the Horner in Australia, just quickly, just what was the highlight of things that you did in the Horn in Australia? Just overview. One particular event you might have flown a display at. Yeah. Oh, look, there's many highlights, as you can probably imagine, flying an amazing aircraft like that. Certainly the first time flying it by yourself, you know, single seat. I think it was my, whatever, the fourth or maybe the yeah, fourth flight, something like that. Um, you might remember that one too, Paul. Looking over your shoulder, having no... No one behind you and and blasting off supersonic down down the coast yeah look um amazing time uh yes i did a, a three-year operational tour uh, the instructional tour where i you know um flew with paul in perth here went back for a second tour did a lot of time at the ocu as an instructor um and during that time i was lucky enough to be selected to do the you know for two years like the display or the demo uh as well for, for the australian air force so some wonderful experiences there, flying you know, displays in all parts of Australia. Um, obviously, Avalon, the Avalon Air Show being the big one. And that was, I think it was 2011 uh, that I did that. And um, yeah, no, wonderful times. So the, just for the listeners, the Formula One, I know about. So the Formula One in Melbourne. The Australian Rules Football Grand Final. So the, the equivalent of the Super Bowl. Any other big ones, Dave? Um, so yeah, just different air shows around around the country. So there's one in Canberra, uh, there's one in Perth, there's one in Ahaku in New Zealand, which was amazing. Actually, that was probably the most fun uh, show to be a part of. Kiwis absolutely love it. And um, I also met the commander of the Pacific. He was there. Uh, he was a lot of fun at the bar. Just a cheeky four star general in the in the bar, no biggie, hanging out. Um, Raph, Raph would have came up to him and be like, hey, player, I got a shot for you, man. We're buddies now. <laughs> he would have made a comment about Raph's hair being too long and his boots on blouse. <laughs> hey, I flew Alzi SAS like 10 years ago. We're friends now, right? Like, we're boys here. Here, have a shot, sir. <laughs> so my point there was just to highlight that Dave really achieved the pinnacle in the, in the Hornet too. Like, there's... You wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily, so that pe the people in recruiting who gave him a chance and this, you know, high school teacher who gave him a, a, a three-day, uh, she bent the rules for him. It's, it's not like there is no round hole and round peg. There are only people and we're all a bit different and someone's background does not dictate uh, what their capacity is and what their future is. And, and as you're saying there, Mike, giving someone a chance allowing someone to flourish and, you know, being someone who can encourage and develop 
there's there's something in that for all of us, I think. And we never know what we're really capable of and what the other person that we're engaging with is capable of either. Yeah. I, I think when you when you meet somebody, it doesn't take too long, especially when you're in a really good healthy mindset, you know, where you have balance and everything else. And someone comes to you, you know, a guy like Dave, and it's just like you, you kind of pick it up. Like it's, it's not like a, a hidden thing, but like this person comes to you, they're humble. They come up and they're just putting in the work and just something about them. I don't know if you want to call it like an aura, but sometimes people just give off this good energy. And it's just like, man, like I want you around and okay. Hey, yeah. I, I don't really know you, but in a way, like I, I'm going to give you this opportunity, man. Like I want to see what you're going to do with it. Cause it, it it's exciting. It really is. Like who wants to go back and do high school maths? <laughs> like, oh, honestly, especially the hard one. Like, no. And there's something yeah, to be said, like lifetime of education, you know, and I know Mike's dived back in and Raph and I have done some stuff too. Go ahead, Raph. Yeah, I was going to say for the uh, listener, if you want to, if I can paint the picture for the recruiter and seeing Mac Daddy walk into the office, it's like a, think of Moby, the musician, but with like <laughs> a, like a, gnarlier beard like a i don't actually can moby even grow beard i don't think he can he really does look like moby he really i've never thought that before he also looks a lot like if anyone's seen um breaking bad walter white he looks like the bad guy out of breaking bad just so you know put a hat on him and the glasses so if yeah if walter white and moby had a love child that'd be mac daddy so Okay, so maybe the recruiter wasn't all wrong. So let, let's cut him some slack. I'm picturing, I'm picturing the Mac Daddy walking in in like a black pinstripe three-piece, you know, with the, the black and white spat shoes and the big loud tie and, the, and, a, and a fedora hat with a feather on the side and a trumpet over his shoulder. And they're like, you're not the guy. I was spinning the trumpet. And they're like, oh, do you want to join the Raf band? Uh, no, I'm already in a musician. I don't need to do that. Yeah. Did you pull up on a Kawasaki Ninja? <laughs> kind of play the role? Yeah, I wish. Right. You know what I would like? This is just personal enjoyment. If you could follow around Raph for like a week, like literally just shadow him. And every time he fails, just have the trumpet and be like, burr, burr, burr. <laughs> it just kind of, just kind of. <laughs> Just kind of edit, edit Raph's life with the trumpet. I, I would love that. What <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, there it is. There she he's, is. Brought it out. he's brought it out. We've got some brassware. All right. <laughs> Come on, Dave. Give us a ditty. Give us I the Mexican like, national anthem. I feel like we're in Marcellus's living room. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you meant? <laughs> we had a great party a few years ago in, in Riyadh and we had a bunch of really senior uh, American military led by the two-star, the famous uh, General Frank Muth out and we did a sticky floor party. So it's a one-hour moving party. It goes one hour in, in people's houses. There's a drink and a game at each house. And uh, Dave was one of the, he was kind enough to be one of the hosts and we had American and British embassy and military as well as Australians. And we got to Dave's and it was like, I thought I'd already, you know, turned it up. Dave got out the trumpet and played all three national anthems in his living room with sort of a concrete resonant environment. Just 
absolutely smashed it and then put the best game on that we've ever played. It, just so you know, there's like a heavy drinking game underway. We're walking from villa to villa on our, uh, our big compound. Yeah, fun night, sticky floor with Frank Muth. Yeah, Melon, I think you don't have to bring up the fact that there's drinking involved. Everybody knows when you're in the room, there's drinking involved. You're Australian. It does happen. It does happen. It's sort of like, I feel like the Australians and the Pittsburghese, maybe sort of distant cousins. Uh, I, I don't know. Having, man. An city, having an Iron City brew. I don't know. If you'd hear this, <clears throat> if you'd hear this guy's story. <clears throat> oh, no, I'm turning into Raph. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, if you'd hear this guy's story about his flight to Australia when he was in Qatar and, you know, it's Ramadan right now and the, the search for alcohol was just, you know, it, it's a, it's a story within itself, but uh, he found the watering hole and indulged with uh, some family and friends. But uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's a beautiful story when you think about it. Well, it was a long wait, you know, honestly, it was, it's uh, nearly two years since I've been in Oz and 18 months since leaving the, the leaving Saudi and heaps of stress about getting out and Dave knows all about it. And so this is really a celebration right now, you know, to be where we are back in our home country um, on the other side of a whole big shift we've put in over there. Like really it's been a hard time and uh, it's genuinely a wonderful thing. And we, we landed in Qatar and there were two families, the Delisandros and the McFadden's and there was a, uh, I mean, we've got five kids and uh, four adults, and we <laughs> literally went searching for uh, for grog, and the whole joint was shut. And who knew? And we, <laughs> but we found it. And uh, six hours at the business lounge. Let's just say we recouped some taxes there. The, they thought that they got the better of us when we handed over the money on the entry, but we won. We exchanged more. <laughs> we extracted value, and then there was a long sleep on the way here. Hey, Mac Daddy, what, um, since you, they covered surfing a little bit. So what do you normally, what do you normally ride? Uh, I've got a couple of surfboards. Um, the, I've got a, so there's a famous surfer called Mark Richards. Uh, he was a, a world champ a few, few years back, but he, he, he makes boards now. So I've got a, a six, four, um, semi fish of his. And I've also got, um, okay. A hypto crypto cover. Actually, it's a, it's a takeoff. A South African guy makes them. Five nine, and um, yeah, at the moment I'm paddling that most of the time. Well, don't, well, I shouldn't say at the moment. I'm stuck in hotel quarantine, and before yeah. that I was in in the Middle East. But whenever I get the chance, David, we jump Southern Ocean. So the ocean that encircles the whole globe on the uh, around Antarctica. That's the one that goes past Esperance and Denmark, yeah. where I will be shortly. Yeah, looking looking forward to getting out with the family soon. Yeah, say what's your favorite? Uh, what's your favorite break? Um, there's a there's a place called Parry's Beach uh, on the south coast uh, in Western Australia, probably my current favourite. But there's lots of surfing around um, the southwest coast around Margaret River. Some great places down there, Gracetown, uh, Middle Peak, uh, those sorts of places. I'm, I'm sure your listeners won't have heard of any of those things, but if they look up Margaret River in the southwest of WA or Western Australia, um, some wonderful surf breaks. Mm. Western Australia is about a third of the continental US. It's a massive, massive state. And it's got about two and a half, three million people. And there's a lot, a lot of coastline. There's a lot of surf to be had. But uh, I reckon we might be at, at uh, stumps here, lads. Um, we've had some 
great backstory. I did not think I was going to hear new info about that. Dave, jump in. Do we need to explain what stumps is? It's the end of the game of cricket. It means that the game's over. What is cricket? <laughs> We're running down the clock. We're taking a knee with a ball. Okay. Um, All right. Okay. We, we understand. Okay. The Steelers are holding the ball. They're kneeling down. Okay. So stumps. <laughs> so we've heard some, uh, we've heard some, honestly, some uh, really great, you'd never know that you'd, you'd have a, a chat with a mate after 15, 16 years and hear more info. And I'm going to dig down on that later, Dave, when we're offline about uh, what happened in your 20s. That's a great uh, piece to share. But from breakdown, if you can keep your eyes on your mission and you can really take that time to evaluate that's where the big breakthroughs come. And uh, I think all of us have had that. And there's something about staying in the game and approaching education and being open to learning and moving forward that has impacted all, all four of us. And, uh, you know, the other thing I want people to take away, there, there is no round peg in a round hole. We're all squishy human beings with different talents. And when someone says no, it doesn't mean no. It just means that they maybe don't understand. And there could be a a career for you that you choose and, uh, you know, your talents can come through. But uh, thanks very much, Dave, for coming on board. The Mac Daddy, we could, I reckon we could probably dive another one and uh, fill in people with where that name came from. But uh, from all of us to all of you, Dave, thanks for, for coming on board. Did you want to leave a final thought for anyone? Is there anything you wanted to add at the end here before we wind this up? No, I really appreciate being invited to come on um, and humbled by that experience. Thank you very much, gents. Um, it's been a pleasure. All right, guys. So from all of us to all of you, we'll see you next week. Stay safe and stay focused. All the best.